Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. A reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet, do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The word of the Lord. You know, I feel like every time that passage of scripture is read, all the Republicans in the room want to shout, amen. Um, That might be a little bit of an inappropriate joke, but um, (laughs) I went there, so I did it last night too, and Larry said it was okay. Um, (laughs) Oh, today we are closing uh, 1 Thessalonians, Um, and for some of you, that might be a really exciting thing. You were just like ready to move on from this book. Uh, I promise you, probably no one is more ready to move on from this book than Larry and myself, um, trying to figure out how to teach it. It's been challenging. Uh, But before we dive into that today, I just want to take a moment, uh, because it is so easy to to come into service, to sing songs, to listen to the message, um, and have no idea about some of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes to make uh, service happen. And most of you would not know this, but when we came in today, uh, none of our slides, projectors, computers, none of our tech was working. Um, And our team of volunteers and Paul, uh, they worked tirelessly to try to get that up and running. And I think the last I heard uh, before service started is we were on to plan G um, to make it work. So we went through a lot of options. So I just want to take a moment to acknowledge them, uh, thank them for all the hard work they do. Um, yeah, they, uh, they were after it this morning, so it was kind of, 
kind of a mess. We like were praying over computers and stuff and laying hands and, and it all came together. So um, I had, uh, just wanted to take a moment uh, to acknowledge them. Uh, like I said, we are closing the book of 2 Thessalonians today. And um, I thought I'd start off a little bit differently as we uh, embark on this passage. And I'd actually like to hear from you. Uh, over the last four weeks, we've been looking through this book and I would love if you, um, if there's something that has stood out to you about this letter, uh, something that Larry or I have unpacked that, that maybe um, sat with you and stirred something in you, I'd actually love for you to, to share that. I know it's kind of hard to ask people to like go back to the last three um, or four weeks of their lives. Uh, and so I'll just give a quick recap of where we've been. Uh, the first week, Larry started off the series by looking at Judgment Day. Um, and he made the, the possibly controversial statement that Judgment Day is actually good news, that Jesus returned and the way that he is going to set the world right is good news for us. Uh, the next week, we looked at um, how Paul was trying to encourage a group of believers who were confused about the end times and give them clarity about what it would be like when Jesus returned. Uh, and then last week, Larry had a great message on what it means to stand firm and hold fast in our faith in challenging times and how we cling to the truths of Scripture and we pray for one another and we love one another. So if you are bold and you want to shout something out, is there anything that's kind of stood out to you over the last few weeks as we've kind of been unpacking this book? How bad does it have to be? How bad does it have to be? Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Anything else? Don't be shaken. Don't be shaken. Yeah, absolutely. Your family, my family disappeared. Yeah, I got a lot of questions about that. I never finished that story. They just went to the grocery store. So sorry I didn't wrap that up for you. Um, apologize. But yeah, they, uh, they just went to the grocery store to get some stuff for breakfast um, and caused me like generational trauma. But that's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, I forgive them probably. Uh, any, anything else stand out from the last, uh, last few weeks? Hold fast. Yeah, absolutely. That's really the, the heart of this book. And we even tried to capture that in, uh, in the video of what it means to hold fast to our faith, uh, despite what might be going on in our world or in our hearts. Uh, Paul today, as we close this book, um, he kind of shifts gears a little bit. And it, it can feel like a, a sudden jolt. He's been talking about Judgment Day and the end times and the man of lawlessness and how we need to stand firm and all of that. And then he just like switches gears and gets super practical and makes statements like, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, and, and it can feel like this really hard shift. Like, what is he talking about? Where did this come from? What's going on in the church? And so we're going to try to unpack that a little bit today, look at what Paul was talking about. Um, and I think the truth is that, that Paul is talking very specifically to this early church um, about something that, that it sounds like was tearing their community apart. Because he comes in really heavy-handed. As we'll see in a moment, the way this passage starts, the way he closes this book, Paul uses language uh, that's really strong and emphatic, and he rarely actually talks like this in very many of his letters. And so there was a, a serious issue going on in the church that he wants to address before he wraps up this letter. And so starting in verse 6, if you have your Bibles, you can open 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Um, we're going to camp on this verse up on the screen for just a little bit because there's a lot to unpack that sets up the passage uh, for the rest of the, our time together today. So he begins and he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
We command you. Like I said, Paul is using really emphatic, strong language. He's invoking all of his authority as an apostle. He's invoking the name of Jesus. What he is about to say is a teaching that he is placing under the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And he's not saying that like, we hope you'll do this or we'd like for this to happen in your body. He's saying, we command this of your community of believers. So we can see right away that this issue, whatever he's talking about, is really important to him. He rarely talks like this. And then he goes on and he, and he says, brothers and sisters. It can be really easy for us to just breeze past that and say, yeah, like that's just kind of like a formal greeting. Or No, Paul is actually very intentional with this language of brothers and sisters. And in, in many of his letters, he refers to the community of faith as a family. And he uses familial language. He, he talks about God being the head or the father of the family. He talks about us being brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ and, and brothers and sisters with one another. The reason Paul was doing this is, is because in the ancient world, giving your allegiance to Jesus, coming to faith in Jesus, it wasn't just like saying a prayer and then, and then being baptized where everybody cheered for you. The, the act of baptism actually many times was a, was a, a disassociating moment. It was the, the moment that people in society or maybe even your own family would begin to ostracize you and cast you out for your allegiance to Jesus. And in those days, the, the, the family unit was really the social fabric of the ancient world. It was how people supported one another. There was obligation and commitment. If you were in a family, then the expectation is that you would contribute to that family and that you would be cared for by that family. But when you gave your allegiance to Jesus, suddenly those family ties begin to be severed and frayed because you're giving your allegiance to Jesus and other people in your life may not have liked that. And so suddenly the, the social network around you that's supposed to care for you is frayed and you're on your own. And so Paul is trying to replace that by saying, no, actually the community of faith, the, the church is the space where everyone contributes and everyone is cared for. Paul never wanted it to be said of the community that anyone in the community of faith would go hungry or be needing of clothing or shelter. The early church was a place where everyone was taken care of. And so he's invoking this teaching. In fact, in the first letter to Thessalonica, he says that may you grow in love more and more for one another as the family of Christ. He's anchoring this teaching on the idea that the church is a family where, where everyone contributes and everyone is cared for. No one's need goes unmet. And then he gets into to his teaching. He says, that this is the command, to keep away from every believer. Now, quick question, who is Paul writing to? There was a, there was a little mumbling, so I know you know the answer. Just shout it out a little louder. The church, believers. And who does he say he is writing about? Believers. Now we get into all sorts of trouble with this passage when we say that this is some sort of like statement about welfare, or this is some sort of statement about non-believers and their work ethic. And Paul isn't concerned with any of that. Paul is concerned in this passage with how the community of faith lives and interacts within, this is a family matter. He's addressing the family of believers. And what he says is that 
believers need to stay away from, keep away from a certain type of believers. And this language, keep away from it, it's a really interesting phrase. It actually means more like to, to remain aloof from. It's not a disassociating. It's not like a severing of the relationship, but it's essentially like don't be influenced by these people. Don't allow the way they live to influence how you live. You know the teaching we gave you. Cling to that. Hold fast to that. And so what is it that's going on in this church that Paul uses such strong language and says he commands them in the name of Jesus to to disassociate or to, to step away from these types of believers? Well, he says... These believers who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. When you hear that word idle, what, what kind of word association do you immediately have? Lazy, right? Like I get pictures of like the guy who plays video games 24-7 and like doesn't do anything else. And no offense if you like love video games, I've just never quite understood video games. But, but that's the image that conjures up in my mind is just someone who like has nothing that they're living for beyond just like their own pleasure and their own thing that they're enjoying. And, and we have this idea of people who are, are not working and that's true. But it's a little more nuanced because what does it say? It says idle and disruptive. There's this meticulous phrasing that Paul is using in this passage, and he uses that phrase several times. It's actually one word in the Greek, idle and disruptive. And what Paul is getting at is that this type of believer in Thessalonica is they are leading what we might call a disordered life, that they are living in such a way that their priorities are distorted. They're, they're disrupting the grain of how the family of God is supposed to operate. And we can have visions of laziness, but, but it's actually tied to a word we've heard in this letter, which is lawlessness. This idea of idle and disruptive is, is people who are living against the law of God. That God has created a design and an order for the world, for the universe. And these believers are not living in step with that design. It's actually tied all the way back to Genesis 1 where we see that, that God created the heavens and the earth and set everything into order out of chaos. Paul's saying that, that this group of people is living a disordered life out of step with how God has designed the world to operate. Anyone ever watched the like Thanksgiving Day Macy's Parade? You know that I, I blanked on it again. I forgot. Yeah, thanks, Tim. He's always so good at, at participating. I always know Tim's with me. But oh gosh, I can't think of the name. Who are the dancers that do the kicking and stuff? The Rockettes, thank you. The only word that keeps coming to mind is baguettes. And I know that's not right. And I just told you, so now like it's my speech dyslexia. The Rockettes. So you know how they all get in line and they are like in sync. They are in unison. Every single movement is exactly like matched with everyone else in the line. Now, what would happen as you're watching this parade, if like one of them just stepped out of line and was like, this is my moment. And they just started like break dancing instead. Like it would disrupt the whole thing. There's a certain rhythm and intentionality to the dance. And what Paul is saying is that that is how God has created the entire universe. 
that the world has a rhythm and a design and an intentionality to it. And some people within this community of faith are living against that. They're, they're insubordinate to the design that God has given us. They're not living according to God's design. And the question is, what were they doing to get out of line? What were they doing to, to mess up the rhythm of the dance? And we find out what Paul says. He gives a little bit more definition in verse 11 and 12 about who the idol were. He says that we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. He uses that phrase again. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. And it's this play on word where, where Paul is saying it's not just that you're not working. It's that you're concerning yourself with all sorts of stuff that, that doesn't actually concern you. Ever met those people who can kind of just like pop in and out and like show up and just expect things to be taken care of them? And they're like so charismatic or whatever it is that, that it seems like they're never prepared and yet somehow things always go according to like their intentions. But like that's the kind of stuff Paul is getting at. These people just show up here or there. They're not settled down into anything. They're not committed to anything. They're, they're just living according to their own desires and they're just busybodies. They're just kind of fumbling through everything. And he says, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, stop being just so busybody, and to earn the food they eat. See, what was happening in this community is there were certain people who were refusing to work. They were refusing to, to go according to the design of how God has created things. Think back all the way to Genesis where, where Jesus, or not Jesus, God, uh, who is Jesus, so it all works, so it's fine. <laughs> where, where, where God creates and he gives humanity a mandate to, to take care of creation and to, to foster and have dominion over it and, and to work within the world. And, and Paul is saying these people are refusing to do that. They're, they're refusing to work. They're capable of working, but they're refusing to do what God has commanded them to do. And, and it's going against everything Paul has taught them. In verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about the own, his own example that he gave them. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat." See, Paul is saying that he gave them an example of what it means to, to not take advantage of the community of believers. The, the reason Paul worked so hard and refused any help or assistance or refused to just be given charity is because he was trying to demonstrate to this community of faith that, that it's not about taking advantage of the community. It's not about what you can get from the community. The, the, the community of believers is the space where everyone is contributing, including the apostles. Everyone is contributing to the community of faith. You see, what was happening in this community is that certain people were taking advantage of Paul's teaching. At the heart of it, they were, they were thinking that, you know, if everybody else is doing all of this stuff, then I guess I don't need to take care of myself because they will take care of me. They were slacking off in their responsibility to the community of faith. Have you ever lived with someone who just kind of like 
didn't do any of the chores or the household stuff because they just kind of knew you would take care of it. Like, I don't know if it's a roommate or a sibling or a spouse, and I don't want to see any, like, elbow nudging right now, okay? We're not, like, after that. I don't want to start, like, any family drama. But, but we've probably, I feel like every apartment or household has one person who's like, yeah, I'm just not going to do it, and I'll let you do it. Like, right now, my daughter, when we ask her to clean, she's like, I'm too tired. And, like, so we have to, like, figure out how to help her get excited about helping us clean. I remember in college, I had a roommate, and it, I'm not like the cleanest person, but I like things to be neat. But I was living with a guy who was a rugby player, um, and he would go to rugby practice, and he would wear his, like, stuff, bring it back. It would be, like, soaking wet with, like, rain and sweat and mud and blood. It was disgusting, and he never washed it, ever. Like, he would just pile his clothes in a room or in the common suite to the point it smelled so bad that me and my buddies did his laundry for him. And this is a grown man. Like, he is a college-age kid, and we were like, we will just do it for you, right? We all have those people who, like, maybe don't do the dishes because they know you'll take care of it, whatever it might be. That's what's happening in this community. His people are slacking off from their responsibility of contributing to the family of God and just expecting others to take care of them for them, to, to show up and give them food and clothing and shelter. And, and Paul is pushing against that and saying, we can't take advantage of the community of faith. And the question is, what would cause these people to live in such a way that they would, would take advantage of the community of faith? What would cause them to live such disordered lives? As I studied and read through this passage this week, um, actually, Terry, we're not quite there yet. Sorry. I know you're, you're working with different slides. As, we were, as I was studying this passage this week, there, there were seven different opinions of, of why the people were slacking off or taking advantage of the community of faith. And, and, it, and Paul doesn't really tell us why. And so everyone's kind of guessing and trying to piece together what's going on. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through each of those seven I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. That would be, take forever. I'm going to just give you two that I think kind of best encapsulate what Paul is trying to get at. And the first is this. Paul was teaching about how the family of faith is supposed to be the place where everyone contributes, everyone is cared for, everyone is, is working together to care for the family of believers. And just as in our households or in our apartments or wherever it might be, some people take advantage of that. What was happening in this early church is people were taking advantage of Paul's teaching and choosing not to work for themselves. They were choosing to take advantage of the community of faith. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, is not whether or not we're working. I, I, when I look at our community, I don't see a lot of people who, who aren't working and expecting like the rest of the church to feed and clothe them and pay for their, their electric bill. That, that's not our community. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is, are we taking advantage of the community of faith? That's the heart of what Paul's teaching about. It's not necessarily about work. It's about, are you contributing to the family of faith? The, the question for us is, when we walk through the doors of church, are we expecting people to meet our needs? Is church the place where we come to, to receive or to take, or is it the place that we come to give and to serve? That's the question at the heart of Paul's teaching. You know, and, and there's a caveat of compassion to that. Of course, there are moments, and, and Waterstone is great at this. When people encounter tragedy or loss, we've had people who have lost their homes or lost their jobs, or we are always there to assist 
to clothe, shelter, feed. The, the church is at its best when it steps into the gaps of what people need. It's why we have Stephen ministers who walk alongside people so no one has to walk alone in our church when they're struggling. It's why we have the care fund where if anyone is in need, we can, can pay for Excel bills or for mortgages or make sure people have food from the food pantry. We, we take care of all of those needs. But the question for us is, is where do we take advantage of the community? Like, like when we show up at small group, is small group the place that we show up hoping people will care for us and love us and, and give us what we need, fill up our cups, or is it the place that we're looking to pour out and serve others? When we walk into church, are we bitter or angry because not enough people said hello to us, or do we go out of our way to make sure we are greeting others? That, that others feel seen and heard, even if we may not. See, the, the question Paul has for us, the, the question that he's getting at with this idea of taking advantage of the community of faith is that, that church is not really about us. The, the church isn't the place where we look for all of our problems, all of our solutions, for everything to be met. It's the place that we come to serve. And again, there's a caveat of compassion with that. There, there are seasons where, of course, come and be loved and cared for. But if we are constantly coming to the church expecting that it will serve our needs, meet our desires, and, and acquiesce to our preferences, then we're misunderstanding what church is all about. I was reminded last night by Jeannie Wilking, who came up and talked to me afterwards, that, that there's this illustration about cat and dog theology. Anyone ever heard of cat and dog theology before? Do you know the difference between a cat and a dog? Some of you cat people are about to be really offended, and I'm sorry, but not really. The difference between a cat and a dog is that if a dog grew like 10, 10 times its normal size, it would still be your best friend. If a cat grew to 10 times its normal size, it would eat you. That's the difference between cats and dogs, right? And cat and dog theology is this idea that, that when you feed and shelter and, and pet and walk your dog, your dog looks at you and says, you must be my master. I will serve you. And when you feed and pet and take care of a cat, it thinks, I must be the master and you must be here to serve me. And the question is, in our church world, are we cat or dog people? Do we come to church to, to serve and to, to love the master and to care for the community? Or are we cat people? Where we're expecting all of the, like, do we come into church like, it's a little too cold today, so I think I might have to leave. Like, are our preferences such that, that we just expect church to serve us? That's what Paul is getting at in this teaching. And one more example on this. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've been sitting in service and whether it was like something the worship leader said or a song or the, the preacher and you just thought, man, like I feel like God is just speaking directly to me right now. Anyone ever had those moments? Anyone ever come into church and just had the complete opposite response? Like I have no idea what he or she is talking about. Like just none. Any of you had that moment? You're like, yeah, I'm having that right now, Paul. Thanks. Like I feel seen. See, what, what we can often think is, is that every single time we come to church, we're hoping for that moment. But the truth is sometimes you come to church and you don't have the, that moment, but someone next to you does. Not, not every sermon, not every song is for you. 
in a community of believers. The Holy Spirit is working in each of our stories. And there are times where it may not feel like the church is meeting us where we need. But that doesn't mean someone else is not being served. Do we show up to the community of faith looking to serve others? And the question I think that, that's at the heart of this passage is, is why were there so many cat people in Thessalonica? Like why, were, why is this something that Paul has to address so strongly? And any guesses why all of these people might have been just thinking like, yeah, I'll be idle, I'll be disruptive, I don't have to work, I don't have to do. Anyone have any guesses to why that might be? People are lazy? Yeah, just kind of human nature, right? Like that's why, yeah, yeah. Human nature, take advantage. Someone else? Entitled, okay. Yeah, could be entitled. Depressed? Yeah, depressed, yeah. So there's all sorts of human elements for why we might come into these spaces and feel that way. And so there's a level of compassion that we can have for people there. But, but I think what's going on is actually tied to the theology that we've been looking at. You see, the, the, the people in Thessalonica, many of them were confused about how the world was going to end, and they thought the end of the world was on their doorsteps. Now let me ask you a question. If we found out that the world was going to end next Saturday, a week, from, a week from yesterday, like what would you do with that week left? Like would you travel? Would you spend time with family? Would you just eat whatever you wanted because nothing matters anymore? I guarantee you whatever you would do, you would not show up to work tomorrow, right? Like, like no one would be like, oh, I just got to keep grinding. I got to make sure I get in on time. Like uh, suddenly when the world is ending, like work no longer matters. You don't need a paycheck. You don't need to show up. You don't care about your responsibility. And what was going on in this church is, is they were confused about their theology. And so that was influencing how they were living their lives. That they thought the world was ending, and so why does it matter? Why do I need to show up? Why do I need to contribute? It's all going to end. You can just take care of me until Jesus comes back. See, it was deeper than people just being lazy or not wanting to work. It was that their theology, what they believed about the world and about Jesus, deeply impacted how they were living. And the question for us is what about how we believe, what we believe about Jesus. How is that impacting our lives? And I think the place that this passage speaks directly to is are we living with the end in mind? See, I don't know that we're like the first century church that thought Jesus was just going to come back at any moment. In fact, I would argue that most of us live our lives as if Jesus is never going to come back. Because how would it change how we spend our time if we thought that Jesus' return was imminent? And I'm not talking the fire and brimstone, everything going to hell and all that stuff. I'm talking about what would it do for us if we believed at the end of our stories, we were going to stand before Jesus Christ and account to him for how we live our lives. I think most of us live in a space where we don't really think about that moment. 
If we're honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with you, most days I'm just trying to make it through the day. I'm just trying to get my kid to school. I'm trying to show up to work, get the stuff done that I need to so I can get home and have a conversation with my wife and maybe watch a little Netflix if everything goes right. Like we are so caught up in the moment and in the present that that we forget where the story ends. I wondered if, if it sank into us, if we believed that Jesus is returning and that we will give an account to him, to how we've spent our time and our gifts and our talents and the abilities that he's given us, the resources that he's given us. You know, I, I wonder if we would spend a little less time scrolling on our phones or binge watching TV. I wonder if our careers might become a little less important to us. I wonder if we lived with that end in mind, we'd stop just living for the weekend or for retirement. Because we would know there's something bigger at the end of our stories. See, I think some of us, we have the, the opposite reality of what this early church believed. It's not that we think Jesus is going to come back in the next moment. We're, we're living as if he never will. And so we have a disordered life Because we're living for our own will, our own priorities, our own agendas that we set for ourselves. I wonder if the book of Thessalonians may be a a wake-up call for some of us, that the story is bigger than that. It's why I think Paul concludes this letter with one last command. He says, never tire of doing good. This is the final point he makes in the book. It comes from verse 13, and he says, As for you, brothers and sisters, whether you are in that group that's idle or the group that's not idle and taking care of idle, whichever group you are in the church, never tire of doing good. This this phrase, doing good, is a deeply, deeply Hebrew phrase. Again, it's tied back to Genesis 1, this idea of when we work with God, God has given us certain abilities and certain resources to to cultivate and do good within his creation, to, to enact his order and his rule in the world. It's an encouragement for the church to continue we faithfully live in whatever livelihood God has given us. Because what we do, whatever our job might be, whatever, whatever thing we have set ourselves to, we do because it is an act of worship to God. There's a book I read this year by a guy named Alan Noble called On Getting Out of Bed. I, I love that title. And the basic premise of the book is is sometimes simply getting out of bed when life is hard, when you're suffering, when you're going through different mental disorders or whatever it might be, getting out of bed is a simple act of worship, continuing to live. And this is what he says about this idea of doing good. He says, this is precisely why we must see that each choice to do the next thing is an act of worship and therefore fundamentally good. Feeding your pets is an act of worship. Brushing your teeth is an act of worship. Doing the dishes, getting dressed, going to work. Insofar as each of these actions assumes that this life in this fallen world is good and worth living, despite our circumstances or our suffering, they are acts of faith in God. 
do we see life that way? That, that even unloading the dishwasher has the potential to raise a hallelujah. To, to praise God even in the minuscule things that we feel like have no meaning or purpose. It is still a way that we can praise and worship and honor our Lord. Never tire of doing good. Whatever the circumstances in your life, whatever you might be experiencing, and it's no coincidence that Paul is saying that, never tire of doing good after he is addressing a community where, where certain people are taking advantage of those who are doing good. He says, even when you're being taken advantage of, yeah, set some guardrails. Like, like you, can, you can feel free to, to push them aside, but don't tire of doing what the Lord has called you to do. And Paul finally, he wraps up this letter. And I love that he closes this letter to this church that's experiencing intense persecution, that, that, that suffering that has all of this strife internally. And he says these words, now may the Lord of peace himself, Jesus himself is peace, give you peace at all times and in every way. No matter your circumstances, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on within you, you have the potential to experience the peace of Jesus himself in, in all times and in all ways. Why? Because the Lord is with all of you. That's not just some throwaway at the end. It's anchored in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me and I am with you to the very end of the age. Jesus has promised us his presence. So whatever we see in the world, whatever we experience, whatever it looks like is happening in the world, we can experience the presence of Jesus himself and he can give us peace in an age of anxiety and strife and evil. That is the good news of the book of Thessalonians. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, as we come to a, a close on this book, God, I just ask that the words that live on from Paul to this early church would be true of our own community. God, that we wouldn't be a place that, that takes advantage of those around us. God, we would be a, a people who are committed to serving and loving and pouring out on others. God, I pray that we would recognize what we believe deeply influences how we live. God, I pray that, that we would live with the urgency that Jesus talks about, that, that the end is coming and no one knows when, so be ready if it's Next week or a thousand years from now, we live the same way because we know you are coming back. God, may we live with that end in mind. God, mostly may we live with the peace that you offer us. God, whatever our circumstances, whatever place we may be coming from this morning, whatever's going on in our lives, the good, the bad, the hard, and the joyful, may we see the opportunities in those spaces to praise and honor you through how we live. And may we experience your presence 
as we go about our days. It's in Christ's name we pray.